she's dead, wrapped in plastic. I'm Chris Pivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about Twin Peaks on Genreless. So this show is going to be a little bit different. We're going to start off with a content warning for Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is a show that is steeped and has a heavily influenced by violence against women, uh, frank discussion, well, there's sexual assault, there's underage sex, there's outdated racial stereotypes, there is alcohol and other drug abuse, there's also outdated opinions on people with different um, mental capacities and a laundry list of other things. It is incredibly important that we bring this up now. So if you don't want to listen to this small series we're doing Twin Peaks, we fully understand. And we hope that you'll come back when we start back doing Arrow, which Eddie hopes would be sooner than later, but I have some other ideas in mind too. <laughs> we're never going to do it. We're just podcasting too. We're going to do Arrow, I promise. That might as well be the podcast title at this point. <laughs> so uh, if you're still with us, I think Twin Peaks is a groundbreaking show that, much like The Prisoner, was well ahead of its time. And without Twin Peaks, we wouldn't have The X-Files, Sopranos. We wouldn't have a television that wasn't just sort of like an individualized episode format. Twin Peaks is what helped establish that and show networks that it was a viable, profitable method. I think it is fair to say Twin Peaks is kind of the starting point of what we now consider to be prestige television. Um, there were other shows, certainly, that captured the public imagination. I mean, The Prisoner, obviously, was one of them in England. Um, so it's not like this is the first show ever to capture public imagination, nor is this even the first show that was a high-profile soap opera. Um, but in terms of how people engaged with it, how it, it approached storytelling, you're right. There's a lot of the DNA of what we now consider to be those kind of 2000s and beyond ways of storytelling. It's heavily serialized, dramatic storytelling that comes from Twin Peaks. And yet also, it's never quite been recaptured. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's... Uh, one of the reasons why I'm glad you paired this with with The Prisoner is that it's another surreal show. So on, on a surface level, it's very obvious there's a connection there. Right? They're both shows that take a genre and add a lot of a surreal layer to it. With The Prisoner, it was spy fiction with the surreal layer. This is now soap opera with, with that additional layer. Um, and some of that extra frisson of why it's different certainly comes from David Lynch. I don't think we should discount Mark Frost's contribution to it. And I have thoughts Not about at all. that. Because um, I have, much like you, have severe thoughts about that because we're, I wanted to discuss the difference between first season that was a Frost and Lynch joint venture compared to second season that was more Frost and third season that was all Lynch. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I hadn't, I didn't realize it broke down that way, but that would be an interesting kind of way to explore that. Um, and, and this, but, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the pilot primarily today or, or the movie. Um, and that was kind of their first pretty heavy collaboration. Um, but anyway, where I was going with that is that um, this was a real attempt to look at primetime television and try to do something different. Uh, whether that is good or bad is up to individual tastes. 
Um, and as we said at the top, um, some of what was good is now not aged well. But uh, I, I agree with you that while there's a lot that you almost have to overlook from modern perspective, there's just so goddamn much in this show that overlooking some of it to get to the rest it is, is to me worth the effort. Absolutely. So to, I guess to touch back on Frost and Lynch for Lynch, this was um, about four years after I want to say blue velvet and he was doing yeah. just nothing but like commercials. So he was in that weird space in his career. And that's one of the reasons that he decided to try to do television. And mm-hmm. I think originally Fro- Mark Frost wanted to do something about Marilyn Monroe, but David Lynch, didn't want to do another sort of historical based piece that people could come with him with, you know, actual facts and say that didn't happen. What are you doing? Kind of how I think he had feedback about the elephant man that when he did that. Mm, Okay. And so they wrote something about, they were going to write something about Marilyn Monroe, but eventually it would have become twin peaks. But before that they wrote, uh, I want to say two other things that didn't get picked up. One of them was a a show called the Marians. Do you know about that one? No. So it was a show about like this advanced sub that goes around underwater and they discover the lost colony of like the Lemurians, not Atlanteans, but Lemurians. Uh-huh. And there's like this black oil thing. And then every week they're underwater doing super cool stuff, much like another show that got made sometime later, if you know where I'm going. Yeah, I was about to say, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> so people that are fans of Sequest can also thank David Lynch and Mark Frost. <laughs> not a connection most people would think of, I'm sure. And the other show that didn't get picked up that I know about is they were going to make a show called One Saliva Bubble. Okay. So uh, there's this town and a security guard sort of spit into this thing and it sort of did a big mind swapping, mind swapping sort of thing for everyone in town. And it would follow like the security guard got put into, I want to say, a female executive and all this other zaniness. And that would have been like the whole premise of the show. And I think it had Steve Martin and Martin Short attached to it. Wow. But that didn't get picked up either. I mean, I don't know how that would be a show for more than a few episodes. But I mean, I think now you could probably do that because when you have the idea of normalizing shows of being like maybe six, eight episodes a season. But in American television time, I just don't know how that could have gotten made. Uh, so instead, we got this, this little show that we like to call Twin Peaks that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, so... Um, I don't know. Do you know how much like Baxter? It's so weird to talk about Tim Twin Peaks on some level because it's it, it like it defined nineteen ninety one, right? I mean, it's 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 the nineties started and Twin Peaks was a huge impact. So it's almost hard to talk about the context of the show because if you're familiar with it, there's nothing but context, and if you're not familiar with it. It's hard to even explain just how much. Uh, Chris sent me a link today. To sh- there was a Sesame Street skit about <laughs> Twin Peaks. That's how much it impacts society. This kids show assumes that kids were familiar with the concept of Twin Peaks enough to understand the joke. And this is not a kids show by any stretch of the imagination. So before we got on today, I told Eddie that this is probably one of the hardest shows for me to talk about because – there is so much, but there's also so little at the same time that we could delve into mm-hmm. just by the very nature of it. Like, do we go down rabbit holes of every single relationship for the characters? Do we try to focus on the greater overarching plot? 
that originally they never wanted to answer. They never wanted to let anyone know who killed Laura Palmer and have it mm-hmm. be focus on the town and these relationships. Laura Palmer was just like the hook to get people to come and watch the show. After that, it was supposed to keep generating interest based on other things that you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess actually before we really dive into any of that, do we want to talk about David Lynch and Mark Frost? Because this um, would be it- the time to do it. I, I mean, I don't know much about them as individuals. I know their bodies of work, but I don't know much about them. Well, as individuals. That's we're yeah. we're a media podcast. We're focusing more on the work than what they do on the side. Like sure. I will not talk about uh, David Lynch's trans meditational thing that he's a part of that could be a big scam or not. It's up to you to decide if you want to go down that rabbit hole. I will not help right. you. Right, right. Um. So, uh, Mark. Frost, outside of Twin Peaks, uh, he wrote uh, a bunch of books after Twin Peaks. Um, well, he, he was, um, I want to say the, uh, what was that, Blues Cop Show? Because that's what his big thing was. Um, in like NCYPD Blues or whatever it was from the early 90s or 80s. I thought that you would know Mark Frost from a few little books like The List of Seven and The Six Messiahs for our, our Holmesian fans out there. I was actually wondering, I was just checking, I was wondering if it was the same Mark Frost, um, and I just checked, yeah, that is, it is definitely the same Mark Frost, which is wild to me, um, because those <laughs> books are extremely mediocre. <laughs> um, but you're right, he was a uh, story editor uh, on History Blues for several years. Um, he also was the co-writer of the Fantastic Four movies, so, you know, they're not all winners. Both of them. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the the two mediocre ones, and not the one that no one can find that Marvel tried to bury. Right, right. Or the one that came after both of those, which we wish had been buried. I've actually never seen it. Although I wanted to see it because it had uh, Michael B. Jordan in it, but I never got around to it. Right. Um. And uh, he's actually won some awards, um, but most of them for Twin Peaks, with one exception for Hill Street Blues. So, I mean, that's that's all pretty standard affairs. So, I mean, those are the two things he's kind of known for, but I mean, he's, uh, he's a guy who likes to do his research. I mean, just from his aesthetic, like he's mentioned the, 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 yeah. the um, Conan Doyle books, um, which by the way are framed as Conan Doyle as action adventure heroes. So and his friend, which will, and his, uh, I forget who he's paired with. Is it, is it, Oh, it's a James Bell, right? Uh, I Bell? can't remember. I know that it's, it's a riff on a, it's not Holmes, but it is, the inspiration that Conan Doyle took to make Holmes. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I think, I think, I think his Watson is, is Dr. James Bell, which is the person who's supposed to be, or vice versa. He's supposed to be Sherlock Holmes, but anyway, um, but he likes to do his research. Uh, so Hill Street Blues was meant to be at the time, a well-researched cop show. Um, uh, so him coming to Twin Peaks is interesting because uh, I'll let you talk about David Lynch, but um, he's a good counterbalance to Lynch's much more kind of fantastical things. So that on paper, they seem to be a good pairing. He could bring grounding to Lynch's more kind of broader fantastical storytelling. And I guess, could, could I just get away with saying it's David Lynch? Because I think everyone in our culture knows who it is. But in case, yeah. in case this podcast goes on and people in a hundred years or 200 years discover like the little disc of it somewhere tucked away because we're going to record them on a disc and throw them into the, into the wind um, I'm and they pull it out and they go, David Lynch. Uh, David Lynch is a visionary film director, I think writer, and he has made some of the most astonishing 
movies that are incredibly dark and humorous at the same time that sort of like turn on the drop of a hat in the middle of an intense scene and it has humor infused into it that is incredibly surreal his movies and style is so unique that they created a whole new term that is called it lynchian to describe something he does because they can't think of any other way to put um boundaries or parameters on it he made he was like the person for the amazing amazing and amazingly bad dune from the 80s that also starred uh kyle mclaughlin Uh, i mentioned blue velvet which is about a, a a murder in a small town and Kyle McLaughlin as a, as a college student trying to uh, Nancy drew it and figure out what goes on to Twin mm. Peaks to the elephant man. Ah, it is amazing. And one of the things though that Lynch really does is that if there is a mistake or accident during screening, he thinks it's great and he leaves it in. We'll even talk about an example of that in the first episode here that we're going to touch on when we actually get to Twin Peaks. Oh, cool. I should know it. Yeah, I don't know much about the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, Olympic stuff. So I'll be I'll be excited to hear stuff you bring to the table. Um, but I think you're right, and I don't think you're overstating it that David Lynch is probably as important a filmmaker in terms of shaping our culture as uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Because um, again, Hitchcockian is is a term used to describe certain kinds of films that otherwise have no other way of being defined. Uh, is there anything else we want to touch on about the history or anything else before we try to go into the episode? There's because I could we could talk for like an hour about that, but we we have our our time window that we have to record it. Yeah. Um. The only other thing uh, uh, I, I think is worth talking about in context a little bit is um this was uh, released in ninety one, but it it definitely is kind of that part of the nineties where it was still the eighties because again decades don't break down neatly, so we're kind of uh, there's gonna be a strong eighties vibe through this um but also this is coming out right at the tail end of the 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 evening soap opera boom of the 80s um dallas falcon crests all of those there was a point in the 80s where evening soap opera was a huge genre and this is playing into that i don't even want to say satirize although i have some thoughts on that but um, but but certainly this is meant. This is a kind of bridge position. Is oh here's another one of those. So a lot of people coming into this weren't prepared for what they were going to get when they were watching it. So they didn't call them soap operas though. They actively avoided the term soap opera. No, they were, no, they were dramas because soap operas are what happened in the daytime in the afternoon. Like these were um, prestige dramas, like the things that your parents would watch, not the other. Right, but that but they are written exactly like soap operas. So from a so yes. from a pod for our podcast conceit, they they do have a genre, a genre of soap opera. Um, and it was also like sort of recorded that David Lynch loved soap operas growing up because of like some of his own family stuff, and he would spend hours watching them and other things. Mm-hmm. So it's not at all surprising. It is very much. I think this is more soap opera than what Dallas or the other shows were, and. <clears throat> intentionally and somewhat unintentionally i would believe no let's get into it let's get into it because um, I, I want to talk about that but I, it's better to talk about that with context all right explain uh, twin peaks chris <laughs> that would be an impossible task um it's february 24th 1989 in the small town of twin peaks washington pete martell leaves home where he lives with his wife Catherine and his sister-in-law josie packard to go fishing his fishing trip is 
quickly interrupted as he discovers a body wrapped in plastic on the beach and he calls the local authorities. They send out Harry S. Truman with Deputy Andy and William Hayward. They examine the body and discover that it's Laura Palmer, the homecoming queen of the local high school and who's almost a minor celebrity in town. Then we sort of shoot over to her home where her mother realizes that she's not there and begins a very frantic state trying to locate Laura's boyfriend, Bobby Briggs. Then she calls her husband, Leland Palmer, who is at the Great Northern with the owner and tycoon, Benjamin Horn, who's trying to sell to some Norwegians this great idea he has to build something on the Packard Sawmill is uh, Packard Sawmill's land, which he doesn't own, which is owned by Josie Packard. Mm-hmm. And that's when the sheriff shows up and informs Lynn about his daughter's death. And we get the first of many, many um, screaming montages from uh, Laura's mom. <laughs> that will yes. become a staple of the show. And then we really spend the next, I want to say, 20 to 30 minutes of the show going through different relationships. Much like before we started, I told Eddie I debated how I wanted to do this because I could go into each individual relationship or just do what I'm about to do. And so we spend 30 minutes touching on the infidelity, the abuse, the various other things until eventually Ronette Pulaski is found crossing over the state line. Her crossing over the state line is what initiates having Agent Cooper sent to Twin Peaks. Before that, you had the local authorities trying to figure out what was going on to limit its success. Mm. When Cooper shows up, he has a meeting with Truman to try to figure out who has authority because normally the FBI is showing up somewhere, local police fight against it. But Truman is like, we're just happy to have you. We're out of our league. <laughs> Please, God, take us off my case. <laughs> and then so begins like the initial investigation of Laura which they investigate a number of friends, some of her boyfriends. You get glimpses into the lives of different players in town until the first, till the movie, the U.S. version of the movie ends with them arresting James Hurley, who was Laura's secret boyfriend, as her real boyfriend was Bobby Briggs, who was in possession for a while of a half-heart locket that they buried, but the other half was just discovered at a crime scene that they believe that Laura had been killed at. And the very last scene is, wow, I can't believe I forgot her name. I know like the actress's real name is Grace, but Laura's mother having a vision of some gloved hands taking that locket from under the rock. And that's where it ends. Right. That is the, the quick three minute version compared to the four page summary that I wrote that I decided not to use. Which is a good place to start with the conversation because um, uh, one thing I talk to people about with, with mysteries, and at some point in time I, I do want to do mysteries, but um, if you look at uh, Philip Marlowe books, right, um, I, I often tell people it's like, don't, the mystery isn't the point. It's a mystery where the mystery doesn't matter. It's about Marlowe navigating this cast of characters to try to come out the other side, and it's really about how Marlowe impacts the world that he enters and how those relationships change. When you watch Twin Peaks, it's better to recognize that Laura Palmer is the linchpin to everything that happens in this show, 
but it's Cooper coming in and disrupting the status quo that leads to everything happening. And Cooper can only stay here if the murder keeps going on. So, um, on the one hand, if you everyone watches, they wanted to find out who killed Warcom. That was like the question in '91, right? It's who like who killed JR? Well, who shot right, who JR? Shot JR? Yeah, right. Exactly. It was that same kind of moment where people really wanted to know. Um, and we'll talk about the answer to that in a future episode. Uh, it was a doctor. He traveled back in time and shot JR. Oh, it goes back to Dr. Who. Um, but you're right. I mean, if you're looking at it from a mystery perspective, this this episode takes way too long to get started. If you're looking at it from the fact that it's supposed to be soap opera, it dives right in because it sets up all of the key relationships that then are going to start spinning out of control, which is how you want a good soap opera is you want to have a status quo, the relationships Everyone's got a secret, and then the secrets slowly get unraveled, and that sets up new scenarios and new relationships and new secrets, and that's the perpetual motion machine of soap operas. So this is a good place to start that. And that you mentioned David Lynch being a fan of soap operas. It's very clear because there's a classic soap opera setup happening here. Um, but it's also everything is just off. And that's, I think, what you get from watching this is that everything is just not quite right. Well, it's almost as if everyone in town knows something has fallen Laura before anyone even talks about Laura having been killed. Like, it just sort of wait, it's like a wave of energy that flows over the town. Yeah. Um, if you watch it, they almost never say Laura's dead. Um, there's lots of, what happened to Laura beat and then they start crying or um, in one point, someone just walks into a, a, the diner and her best friends immediately realize what's going on, pulls out a cigarette and starts trembling and crying. Um, I mean, you're right. It, it's everyone's so touched by this woman that when she's gone, everyone kind of feels it on a almost a preternatural level. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about the show is that because it's a mystery juxtaposed with a soap opera, the mystery side kind of dictates, oh, she's a beloved character, and so everyone's invested to try to find out who her murderer is. The soap opera side requires her to have been a horrible person because most people in soap operas are horrible. And <laughs> the show's constantly ping-ponging between these two poles of Laura Palmer, and the fact that we almost never see Laura Palmer as a person is another big part of that, right? We we see her in flashbacks, we see her in dreams, we see people that look like her in future episodes. Um, but we never actually see Laura Palmer doing anything until much, 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 much later. So she's just this force that everyone talks about, but we, we as the audience never actually get to know who she was, only to see what people thought she was. And so with that being said, I'm going to pull us back a little bit to when you first start the show itself, the first thing that you actually encounter when you're watching it is that theme song. Like the music is a key part of Twin Peaks, much how when we talked about Cowboy Bebop, how the music was so integral. The music for Twin Peaks is just as integral to the show to establish that mood that Lynch and Frost want because you can't have that without it. Like even when you start watching it and just seeing the sawmill and like all the wood being cut, that music is present throughout you. And then it leads you into the show where you first get to see Pete, who's getting ready to go fishing. 
which is sort of like a very mundane thing. It doesn't even start with Pete. I'm sorry. It starts with Josie just staring into a mirror, which is sort of like a reflection of herself looking back. And then you get Pete trying to go around his daily life and you see like the tension in his relationship with Catherine, who's like, I'm going fishing and he's trying to get some attention or affection from her. And there's like nothing. Yep. And Pete seems to be like an incredibly affable character that you kind of want to want to like. Um, as a, a side note, this actor is also someone that has been in a bunch of Lynch's movies. Like he was in, oh, I forgot what it was now, Eraserhead and some oh. other things. Yeah, Lynch is definitely a director that likes to, he, he finds actors, he likes to use them in as much as possible. It's a certain style of director. And, you know, again, I don't necessarily bother by that, but certainly some people are like, oh, it's the same actors every time. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's not. Um, but the other thing that you're right, this opening scene sets up is, uh, a certain expectation that dialogue doesn't work the way it normally works for late 80s television. Um, uh, it, it's almost, again, I keep going back to noir, but I think it's a good touchstone. It's almost noirish in the fact that people have conversations where there's missing bits of line, where the, both the characters understand what they're saying to each other, but we as the audience are only getting it through um, like their body language or from kind of visual context. Uh, so like you said with the scene is like um, on the script page, it's just, it, it's, it's equivalent down to like, hi, honey, kiss, going fishing. But in the way that these characters are acting and betraying each other, there's a whole nother level of what's going on. And, and that kind of gone fishing line comes across as, well, then fuck you, I'm out of here. Uh <laughs> And that is a constant trend throughout. And I, I think that's probably the, the blending of, again, of the, of the two writers, because uh, both Lynch and Mark Frost also were, were sorry, editors, because they were both script editors on this, um, at least to start. Uh, and so you have that kind of uh, uh, frosting tone of very kind of naturalistic dialogue, the way people really talk, and Lynchian dialogue, which is very much not. Uh, and you get this kind of interesting juxtaposition of people talking in, in almost stilted ways, but because these are characters who know each other really well, this is a small town, everyone knows everyone, everyone's business, they don't need to fill in the gaps. They don't need to do the exposition that audiences would expect them to do. Because again, like Hill Street Blues, that style of like, this is how people actually talk to each other. They don't conveniently fill in for whoever's listening to the conversation. So, it, it, and where it ends up being is kind of a form of the kind of stilted acting that bad daytime soap operas have, but there's a layer, an undercurrent there that's very different and surprisingly engaging. But if you're just kind of half listening, it does sound like heavily melodramatic, almost too ornate acting, which again, you get in like Days of Our Lives, you know, As the World Turns, all that stuff. Um, so it, so it, curiously, it's, it's interesting. Go ahead. Sorry, you're, you're making. I was I was gonna do what I do. No, no, I was I was just gonna say it, it's interesting that 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 I'm sure that was intentional to get that sound across. But the fact is that you have two different people coming in very different directions, and then the intersection is melodramatic, bad soap opera dialogue. But it's not bad. It's it's just, it just sounds like it, but it's very different. It's a weird transmogrification. So curiously, did you ever watch soap operas to an extent? Yeah, I did actually. Which ones? Curiously. Um, uh, I generally watch General Hospital. Um, I watched Days of Our Lives, but I did not 
understand half of it uh, because Days of Our Lives is one of those shows that expect, oh, yeah, you know all 45 years history of this. No, no, I do not. Um, I watched a little bit of Dallas and Falcon Crest back when it was on. Uh, but, I mean, and really I watched Dallas because that was what you watched in the 80s because, again, everyone was talking about uh, JR. Um, and the fact that it was all a dream which is the worst trope ever. Um, uh, but I mean, I, 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 I have dipped back in and out of soap operas. I tried watching one recently and it, it has a very different shape now. Um, but I have poked at um, telenovelas occasionally. I've poked at some British uh, soap opera. In fact, uh, there's a long-running British radio drama soap opera called uh, hmm. The Archers that I've just started listening to. Um, so there's there's a lot of different permutations of this formula that have been around for at this point sixty seven years something like that. Nice. Also, professional wrestling technically is a soap opera, but I won't go into that. <laughs> we would have to have Matthew on the show to really discuss that. <laughs> yes. Probably. My my knowledge of the professional wrestling would go. I remember the cartoon. Uh, I remember Glow, and Ooh. I think that's it. Fair enough. All right. Um, so we uh, we also get a brief glimpse into Josie's relationship with both of them, which is also a little unusual because they're all living together. And, you know, there's something about the sawmill that they don't really go into quite yet. Mm. And we get to see <laughs> the unusual receptionist at the police station who takes a call and you get to automatically get a sense of who that character is, Lucy, just from how she's engaging with the sheriff about which phone she's going to send something to. Like right. that is also helping reinforce the characters and how they're interacting with each other. So it's all building on itself slowly. And, and you brought up earlier about um, uh, outdated stereotypes and neurodiversity. But what's interesting to me watching it again is that she comes across as, as uh, neurotypical um, or neurodiverse, I'm sure you prefer. Uh, but it's never quite played for laughs. Um, it's just, she has a very specific way of communicating and she has to kind of work her way to get there, which is something I've seen in some types of of neurodiverse people. Uh, so it's interesting that it, it, it it almost feels like it was, should have been written for laughs, but it's never, she's never the object of jokes. She's just this quirky character that happens to work there. But when everybody is quirky, she doesn't stand out as, haha, look at it, look at how quirky she is. It's the, okay, she, okay, whatever. Like she, the fact that she overdescribes thing is like the least of the weird things going on in this town. Um, well, so everyone except, kind of interesting. Everyone except Truman is quirky. Well, okay, fair. Uh, but he's a quirky name, so there you go. So Harry is Truman. Uh, originally, I think there was talks about having it be a character named Stedman to represent like being a steady man, mm. you know, because, yeah, it is. Right. Um, it's that kind of show. And so mm, something else I wanted to mention that you touched on earlier. When you said it was a small town of 50,000 people, originally they had it written for 5,000 people. And one of the few network tweaks to the show, because the network wanted so badly for Lynch to make this show, they gave very few notes, but one of them is like, we don't think our audience could relate to a show that was a town of 5,000 people. So they added like a little zero in the end to make it 50,000. That's 
that's wild to me because um, uh, one of these shows that I feel like gets reasonably close to some of the vibe of Twin Peaks is Letterkenny, um, which is explicitly a show about 6,000 people in Canada. But if you do notice, so while it says 50,000 people, you never get the feeling it's 50,000 people. No, no. At all. It feels like it's a couple thousand people that live here. It, it, uh, frankly, it feels like a town of 50 people. <laughs> it's, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> And that would also reinforce why Laura's death was so powerful in such a, like a small mm. community. Then you definitely feel every single loss of every person that lives there. Absolutely. Um, the the other thing I thought was funny is a doc that came out, Doc Hayward, is actually a Moss, Mark Frost dad. Really? <laughs> yeah. So That's amazing. Th- there's there's going to be a lot of nepotism associated with Twin Peaks. For instance, uh, Lynch's daughter wrote a book. I want to say Mark Frost's brother wrote a book. Yeah. So there's a lot of, but they, they go out, they discover that it's Laura's body and you get the first scene of Andy who breaks down crying during the process. And they let you know that this isn't the first time it's happened. And in fact, this is like a normal part of it so much so that are you going to, when Truman asks, is he going to do this every single time? Yeah. Showing the emotional impact and almost how empathetic Andy is for feelings of other peoples and situations around him, mm-hmm. which is something that plays throughout the entire series, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. Um, and again, it's something you kind of have to deduce from the conversation uh, because you're right. It, 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 they, they actually never say how many times this happens. At least at the front. When, when Cooper comes in, then they can immediately recap all the stuff and fill the audience in. But until he shows up, they're just talking like uh, we all know what's going on. So that's what's really interesting about it is that if you're half paying attention, you can still kind of follow along. But if you're completely paying attention, you realize the more you pay attention, the more you realize how much you're missing, which is a fascinating kind of inverse thing. Um, which is honestly, and that's how this house soap operas work, right? If, you're, if you have it on TV and you're doing housework or whatever, you can kind of vaguely follow along. Um, but it's going to fall out of your head probably after the episode and then you watch another episode. It's kind of like that. But if you're really invested in paying attention to notes, you see lots of little callbacks and, and ties to it. But then that starts to send you down a, a rabbit hole. It's much like reading comic books, frankly. Um, it's the, okay, I, I, I know this guy is now t- tied to this guy, but that means they're referring to an issue which I haven't read yet, so I have to go find that issue. And it's soap operas are the same dynamic. And this show, again, really well evokes a soap opera that has been going on for two years, but no one's ever seen an episode of it until now. And for me, that is some of my favorite writing sort of in media res where you just sort of mm-hmm. come into the story and it exists before you get there and exists while you're there. And if you leave, you still have the feeling it will continue to exist even without you. Yep. And so that reinforces that level of engagement to be a part of something that is ongoing and living. So like that is, I keep saying genius and it is, I, I can't help it, but it's, Brilliant. Well, I mean, let's be honest. While we pick these two shows kind of arbitrarily, at the same time, we also pick two of the most beloved television shows in the 20th century. So, I mean, of course, we're going to do lots of this show's amazing. There's a reason why people still talk about this. There's a reason why I got a remake so many decades later. So, I mean, there's connection here. But um, this is another show we talked about with The Prisoner 2 where – the actors would have made or broken this. And uh, there is no, I, I maintain there's no actor who is 
funnier on this show than Laura's dad because <laughs> he spends the entire first season spoilers crying about Laura. And each time it is unintentionally hilarious to everyone around him, but intentionally hilarious when you're watching it and you feel bad because this man is genuinely grieving, but also it is consistently funny when he does it. And that is a masterful comedic timing you have to pull off. It is. <laughs> um, so we then go back originally how we touched on the house itself. And you have the mother who realizes that she's not there and automatically becomes frantic, knowing mm -hmm. that something must have befallen her daughter without even hearing anything before. And is desperately trying to get in contact with someone to let her know what's going on. And that's when we get to meet the father who is with, one of his employer, because the father is a lawyer, and they're trying to sell something illegal. But the sheriff shows up to tell the father about what happened to Laura. And you see the phone drop, and the mother knows that, like, she's dead. Like, mm -hmm. those are it's incredible touchstones. And to hear, like, that scream is just consistent throughout her character. I think pretty much throughout the entire first season, she's screaming or catatonic. Like, those are pretty much her two states. Which is, a, a, to be honest, it's, it's, it's a soap opera trope. Um, and actually, I'd like to brought that up because one of the things that's genius about the show, but it does require understanding a bit of what it's pulling from, is that all of these characters are soap opera tropes. They're all soap opera staples. And what Frost and Lynch do is not make them more complicated they make them more more stereotypical. A couple of exceptions again. Truman's a well-rounded character. Um, uh, a couple other characters I could point to is relatively well-rounded, but everyone else in town is a ridiculous stereotype, and it's just played straight. And Laura's mom is the neurotic, um, grieving mother, uh, and the littlest thing will set her off. And again, that, that Lynchian level of humor where it becomes almost funny and we as the audience feel bad, but also it's like, that, that's a pretty joking. But like that scream, for example, that's not the, the funny part. I, I bring up the scream because like that, it so feels so real, right? It feels so from the gut. There's a wounded animal, like, you know, level of scream. And then it just keeps going and going. And, and, and then, again, it's another legit thing. It's like, it's, it's a little too long. It, it's, it sits on that scene. And it's like, we almost feel like we're watching. We, we shouldn't be watching this. You know, it's like, she should be grieving. She should, you know, we shouldn't be paying attention to this. It just keeps going. But that's part of Lynch's style. He likes to linger and make mm -hmm. it that incredibly awkward moment for the person doing it, for the viewer and everyone involved. And we'll see that throughout Twin Peaks consistently. And well, yeah. And actually, um, that, that uh, you mentioned this, the 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 music. And that's one thing that the music helps to reinforce that this is this show is going to take its fucking time. <laughs> you know, um, it, it it is not in a rush to get anywhere. Uh, and this is a good example. Of, like I mentioned, you know, you said twenty minutes of just people learning Laura's dead. But what's really happening is we're recapping all the relationships in the show so you know how everyone relates to each other and how they relate to Laura. And each of those moments is like, it's just a little too long or, or it's cut weirdly. 
Uh, and it's, it's, it's absolutely intentional because we as a viewer should feel like, oh, I care about these people who know, don't know anything about them. Uh, oh, no, I paused it. It's because um, I was watching all my Blu-rays. It's about it's 36 minutes before Cooper shows up. Wow. So if you were having a normal episode of about 45 minutes, if they're broken into two two different nights, the first 36 minutes of like your 45 minute episode would not have who we considered to be the protagonist of the show in it. Right. And what a protagonist he is. But before we get to Cooper, we get to go to Bobby Briggs, Laura's boyfriend. He's a, a true-hearted, soft-spoken, caring individual. <laughs> None of those is true. <laughs> of course not, because he's uh, at the diner, and he's picking up his secret girlfriend who's married to a drug-dealing, sexual-assaulting predator. And so the two of them load up in his car to go back to her house for uh, adult shenanigans, only to discover that Leo, um, Shelly's husband, is in fact there. And so Bobby drops Shelly off a ways away and speeds away to go to school. If there is one thing that, if you're watching Twin Peaks, if there's only one thing you have to remember about this show, it is this. Leo is a piece of shit. <laughs> Just all the characters are complicated and have shades of gray. No, Leo is a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, Remember when I mentioned nepotism? Yes. Leo is a casting director's son, if I remember right. <laughs> well, he does a really great job of being a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things, though, that really stands out about the Leo scene is that Shelly tells Bobby in the car that Leo called her last night from somewhere that was too far away for him to be able to come to town yeah. in the amount of time before he shows up. So that's like dropping a, a clue to possibly someone that might have been involved with Laura. Mm -hmm. So far, your Pete who discovers a body just from his reactions, you're pretty certain is not was not Laura's killer. Right. And you can assume the sheriff probably didn't do it. Andy, who can't even look at her without crying, is unlikely to do it. The doctor didn't seem to do it. Catherine and Josie, we don't know about, but it is unlikely. And so this is our potentially one of our first real suspects. Now, correct if I'm wrong, but at the early stages, I don't think – I think Lynch and Frost intentionally didn't know who killed her, right? Like they had no, no – it, they had no preconceived notion who the killer was at the start of the show. I could be wrong about this, but I think they always knew who killed her. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's one more than Lost had, that's for sure. Uh, well – it is also known that uh, David Lynch was making up the show as he went along, much like Lost. <laughs> That's why I thought maybe um, uh, they hadn't figured that part out yet. Um, but certainly there is uh, – something we'll have to see as you go on. But, like, the show is constantly changing. Um, the show we're watching at this point in time, when we come back to this in 2017, <laughs> boy, it's going to be a very different show. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you're right. There's a lot of kind of improv happening here. Uh, but um, this is the one of the things I like about Twin Peaks, and we see it right here at the start, is the energy of the actors. The actors, at least, don't seem to know exactly what is going on, which is great because the characters don't know exactly what's going on. Um, so there, there's a really strong energy of like, uh, uh, okay, how does this tie to that thing? And we, we don't know. Well, why does the scene even exist? 
it's unclear. Is there a larger plan? Who knows? Well, I read somewhere that part of the reason the actors don't seem they they don't seem to know what's going on is that they didn't like they would send them just their pages of the script. Um, when we finally find out who kills Laura, they filmed I want to say three or four different versions of it. Oh. so no one could be certain which one they would use. So there's lots of those things that they did to keep that sort of mystery and suspense going on, even for the cast. It definitely comes and across on the screen. And there's one character. Ooh, I want, I'm not even going to talk about that because that was just bad all over. I won't even go into that. Okay. Um, so Bobby, when he shows up at school, is taken in to be questioned by the police who are already there. The police are starting to notify the school itself about Laura's death. But even at the school, people already seem to know. We have this girl that runs across the uh, the lawn screaming before anyone tells her. Mm-hmm. And you have Donna and James at their lockers. And they notice that Laura's not at her locker. And there's a sort of moment of questioning if something might have happened to her. And as they're leaving to go to class, if you blink, you miss it. But you get the kid that does like the the arm wave dance behind them for no reason, oh, utterly. Oh, I missed that. Just, I did miss that. Um, I guess we, we'll speed up a little bit because I, I could linger much like Lynch for a long time. Doing this. <laughs> Uncomfortably um, long. Cooper, when he actually gets into town, quickly says that Bobby wasn't the killer. And they start the investigation. They go through Laura's home. We get to meet the other deputy, Hawk, who is incredibly competent, but has some stereotypical traits also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to point out is the sheer genius of the tape recorder and Diane as a storytelling concept. Because it allows a lone protagonist to find ways to externalize his inner thoughts. Uh, which is something that's very hard to do without doing voiceover. And voiceover at this time was starting to be seen as uh, uh, hokey and, and overdone. Look at the Blade Runner debate. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, Blade Runner was 82 and this is 91. So it's like 10 years past that point. And that was just on the cusp of that. Um, and it, again, it also raises a lot of questions like, who is Diane? Why is... How, how does he send these tapes back to her? And I mean, there's also logistics stuff that come up with it. But also, it, it Cooper himself is an interesting character because he's just not what you expect from an FBI agent in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he's you doubt you thinking dour men in black coming in serious, and he's just none of these things. Uh, and so, having someone who's here to investigate a murder of a young woman and is raving about pie really sets a particular tone. And, but that's what makes the show like Cooper's brightness in the dark situation is a great contrast. It keeps you engaged. And the fact that he's so humorous is another hook that keeps people watching and to see the banter between Harry and Cooper. Mm -hmm. It has very much a, a Holmes and Watson esque feel to it. Yes. And one of the reasons that Cooper is here and he's so interested is that he thinks this is linked to another case that he's had with the murder of Teresa Banks. And so they go in to the autopsy of the body and you get one of the most grueling scenes, Yeah, which we'll touch on in a second. But remember how I said there was a Lynch likes to keep accidents in mm-hmm. when he turns to someone and asks him a question and the guy responds, Jim, and then mm-hmm. he asks him the question again. 
that was a mistake. That actor thought that Kyle MacLachlan was asking him his name. Ah. And like the blinking light that was on set during out the entire time, Lynch didn't want to wait for someone to come to fix it. So they just went ahead and filmed with it. There are touches like this that add aesthetics to the show that Lynch just ran with. I I genuinely thought that was intentional, the, the, the flickering light thing. So it's oh, genius. Oh, that's that's good. It's also kind of how Lynch cast people. He just brings them into a room and he gets a feel about them. He's less concerned about what they would do. And if he likes them, he'll add them in, which is one of the problems and one of the great parts about the show. But that's why the cast is so large mm-hmm. is that he just, I like you, kid. Let's put you in here somewhere. And you write something for them to do. Uh, but then we have the the grueling scene of Cooper digging out this paper-like letter from under a fingernail. I mean, I've watched horror movies, and this is the worst. Just how it, it lingers on that and squeezing in to pull it out. Oh! Yeah. And, again, a perfect kind of timing note where it's like uh, uh, he has the, the tweezers, and he starts digging in the fingernail, and you see that for a second. And then the tweezers kind of sink in like half an inch. And that moment is just like, oh, oh, Jesus, that hurt. And that's when we learned that about the Teresa Banks murder and that this isn't the first murder like this. And so that automatically opens up more to a larger thing that's going on, which adds another layer of complexity to the already complex social situation with all the different relationships. I mean, it's almost... uh, you mentioned it's, it's it's almost too complex, and that and is I keep going back to this, but that is another I think trope of soap opera pacing, because with a mystery, um, there's a certain structure. It's like you have a certain number of, of suspects, and there's a suspect that everyone believes it is that immediately gets counted, and then uh, it's the ideal pacing is that it's the last person you expect turns out to be the murderer. But in order for that structure to work, you have to have a relatively finite cast that the reader or the viewer can kind of keep in their head. Um, uh, to go back to the, the episode that we keep threatening to do, if you watch a, a Benoit Blanc movie, there's about <laughs> six or seven characters of meaningful orbit around Benoit Blanc. And they slowly get whittled down till it's about three or four. And you think you know which one it is. It turns out it's not quite that person. Or in, in the case of Glass Onion, it absolutely is that person, but for different reasons. Anyway. Um, but with this, there's just too many characters all in your head, which is more of soap opera structure. Right? You so, Soap operas, when they're firing all cylinders, has just a few too many plot lines for people to easily remember. Because then when that – you want to do stuff like here's a plot line. We drop that. We forget about it for a week, and then we come back next Friday and bring it back up again. It's like, oh, I forgot about that. that that's the actual <laughs> moment you want with a, with, a, with a good soap opera. And so you can see that again being set up of like there's this and there's this and this. You, know, you say it's half an hour or 32 minutes till, um Cooper comes in. We're now a little over halfway through, and already it's like, wait a minute, I've already forgotten stuff from the beginning of the show because there's just so much happening. And this show's not done introducing characters by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, like we haven't even mentioned uh, Ed. We haven't gone into Norma and Ed's sort of relationship, even though Ed has a wife, Nadine. There's all these other parts that we can go into that we've just sort of cut off to try to get more to 
the more central meat of the episode itself. Much right. how Andy and Lucy have an on again, off again relationship right now that's implied just a smidge if you get some of the interactions, but it's not delved into yet. Yeah. So while uh, they're interviewing Bobby, Cooper lets Harry know via like texting on a calculator or phone equivalent that Bobby didn't do it and they cut him loose. Bobby is a total ass the whole time. But they do let it slip that someone with the name Jay is associated and Bobby believes that to be James. And so that's when he and his buddy Mike, a.k.a. Snake, a.k.a. I think they said that name like twice throughout the whole run of the show, um, are going to go and try to beat up James to get some answers. Right. They also question Donna, who Donna tells him that because they have a video recording and Donna tells him that, no, some hiker came by and did it. So she didn't implicate James, but Cooper sees a reflection in Donna's eye of a bike. That's like Blade. I mentioned Blade Runner earlier for this reason. That is a Blade Runner 2049-esque move where they enhanced, enhanced, enhanced. And you have Ryan Gosling looking and seeing that stuff. Like, oh. And and it's, it's, it's one of those things like it's a really cool moment. And also when you think about it for a second, you go, wait a minute. Wouldn't you see the camera in her eye? <laughs> why would why would you see the the the, 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 the angles don't work? Um, but it doesn't matter, right? Because because that's what this whole show's about. It's like, would this be cool? Yes, darn it. Uh, and so Eddie uh, in the Flash episode let people know of a secret crush of his he was embarrassed about. So now I too will have my own open confession. Oh no, um, I fell in love with Audrey Horn. Uh, Cheryl Finn and mm-hmm. I watched Rude Awakenings everything that she was in but Audrey was astonishing she, um, which goes into some of the um, uh, warnings we gave to the front because you can't step away from the fact that Audrey Horn is a teenager right? she's just very explicitly a teenager and yet boy I feel you you know, it's it's like it's it goes it goes into Lynch loves playing with forbidden line drawing, right? Those liminal spaces. So it's like she is a woman; she's finding her sexuality. This is the kinds of things that you know teenage girls do, and we, as as the audience and certain other characters around her, are like we should not be feeling this way. And boy, they're going to push that boundary later on in the show a whole lot. But you're so, right. Well, Audrey Horn is is definitely she has the femme fatale just down. And so they're I th- I think they're in their twenties and they're playing teenagers, all except right, right. for Mason Amik, who I think was eighteen, mm-hmm. or um, Shelley is Mason Amik plays Shelley. And so Audrey goes into her father's business meetings and let the Norwegians know that someone has been killed, which totally blows up that entire deal. Yep. For Ben Horn, showing you what sort of character she is. She is like chaos throughout the show for this episode right now. Originally, they Audrey was actually supposed to just have a walk on role and then been gone, but that changed also. I and they it. gave her talking lines because originally I think the Norwegian was supposed to see on the news that there'd been a death, but instead that Audrey do it, which adds so much layer and complexity to the show and establishes her relationship with her father. And again, the, we talk about the comedy of it is like when she comes into the room um, and everyone's slowly turning and, and noticing her. Uh, and then the, the person speaking uh, to the group 
looks at her, looks down his notes, looks at her, looks down her notes, looks, looks at her again, that kind of triple take is just funny and way too long. And the fact that it's way too long is actually what makes it even funnier. It, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those scenes you look at and you go, why? there's nothing about this that should be this funny, but yet it's hysterical. And so you, I ended up analyzing it because I'm like, what? And, and it turns out it's the comedy of threes, right? It's like, there's a point in comedy where it's it's funny, then it stops being funny and it becomes funny again if it goes long enough. And you have to find that right moment of going just, just long enough. And it, that, that scene does it so well. Mm-hmm. And parallel with that, we have the authorities finding an old abandoned train car that is the murder scene. And that's where they find a, a bloodied hammer, rag, a half heart shaped necklace. And this mm-hmm. is the other half I mentioned earlier that James has, but this is the half they found and they find a note written in blood that it has like the best line that I've used so many times, fire walk with me written on it. Like that is, it, it means nothing, but it is beautiful at the same time. And it's interesting in retrospect, too, because um, the way it's written and the way the actors play it, it's fire, walk with me, as if those are two separate concepts. But because we know eventually there's going to be a movie with that title, and it it becomes fire walk, which is a verb, you know. Um, So it's interesting to see how even just things like spacing and line delivery can misdirect you. It's like, is, is there someone named Fire that's being directed to walk with me? Yeah, that's how it reads, honestly, in that first moment. And then over time, it gets layers and layers and layers. And we'll, we'll touch back on this, but we have Leo and Shelly. Leo discovers their, uh, their cigarette butts at their house and accuses Shelly of cheating and says if there's ever another cigarette butt, he will basically snap her neck. Reinforcing the abusive relationship that she's in and the type of person that Leo is, which then reinforces that maybe Leo is a person that killed Laura. Still, everything's starting to point towards this one character. Yeah. Uh, Cooper leads a town hall meeting that talks about he's going to lead the investigation and mentions Teresa Banks again and imposes a curfew for all citizens in Twin Peaks under the, under the age of 18. Mm-hmm. James, on the other hand, has scheduled a secret rendezvous with Donna to meet them later that night. Donna sneaks out. Her her own abusive boyfriend, Mike, Bobby's best friend, show up in a, a drunken teenage scene to Doc Hayward. Both of them are drunk, and when Doc questions Mike about his drinking and driving, Mike tells him, I'm not driving, Bobby's driving. And Bobby is drunk, dancing on the hood of a car. Like, that that is so funny on so many levels, and just so blunt at the same time. Like, oh. And the worst part is, 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 is he goes, okay, yeah, no, it's that tracks. It's <laughs> just like, the 80s, man. <laughs> and it all leads to the Roadhouse, which at the Roadhouse, they're once again playing the incredible music, and you have Julie Cruz singing. Yep. And it reestablishes the tone of the show. But at the same time, you envision this is a small town, and they're going to a Roadhouse. You would expect maybe country music, maybe like hard punk or something, right. not what we get. It also is an example of my favorite trope, which is someone in the sh- someone in a show singing a theme song for the show. I don't know why I love that trope so much, but it was just like, it's the theme of the show and they're singing it in the show and it's great. It's like when they said the title of the show, it's great. You know, yeah. Um, I guess another side tangent. Have you ever seen, I want to say it's called Industrial Symphony Number 1? No. 
go and YouTube that. And okay. you talk talk to me about it next next week. <laughs> I'll leave it like that. Now. <laughs> it is a totally different kind of show. I, I took notes. You, wow. We've done this how long now? I know. Over I a know. year? How many times have I taken notes? Zero. <laughs> no, Until didn't. today. Zero. Once. By the way, I resisted making a Johnny Dangerously joke because we're being very serious right now. Are we? Are we really? Uh, all right (laughs) so to to wrap it up there's a fight that breaks out at the roadhouse we get the james is part of a a gang you're assuming and they take donna out donna meets with james in the woods they share a, a passionate kiss even though their best friend is technically dead as of today for them and they agree to bury a necklace cooper and truman follow them there they arrest james and take him off the jail. That's when we get Sarah, haha, I remember her name, uh, having a dream or vision about someone discovering the neck half necklace that they just buried, which then links to the crime scene that the authorities found. So that now gives us two, at least two possible suspects, mm-hmm. James and Leo. Yep. And that's the American version. There is the international version that we're mm-hmm. not going to discuss today. Because they take part to the international endings and make that into something greater that becomes the rest of the series. So that's why I think that Lynch and Frost had a solid idea of what they wanted and they just condensed it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, um, again, random TV trivia. Uh, I don't know why I have this in my head, but uh, around the 90s, there, uh, uh, VHS and DVD, later on DVD started to become big. And so there was this kind of movement of if this TV movie doesn't get picked up, we can repackage it and sell it to the home market down the line, uh, which is, I think, what the international version was trying to do is, is like, the OK, well, if this TV thing just falls apart, we can at least take all this pilot stuff we shot and resell it somewhere else uh, because video is relatively cheap to make at that point in time. Um, and so that's why sometimes you'll get weird movies, uh, like if you watch a Mr. Science Theater, um, Master Ninja is this weird kind of disjointed collection of movies because they weren't movies. They were actually a television show that just never really went anywhere. So they got repackaged as movies and sold in the home market. Um, imagining Twin Peaks in a two-hour movie is almost painful to think about for me. Like how would like that even work as a two-hour lines. movie? Yeah, it's so so weird. But um, and as a movie format, having Cooper show up really at about 35, 40 minutes d- does not work then at all. It's yeah, yeah. It it, I, I, it would have, I think it would have to be massively recut to, to work as a movie, and I think it would lose all of its charm if it did that. But the the TV movie format for at least U.S. television is like I want to say from the sixties and seventies. That's how they would test run to see if a show would do well enough for it to become a television show. And this is one of the few times, though, that there was enough international interest that if they made it into a movie like that, they got a big budget bump. And Lynch wanted this TV show to feel like a film mm-hmm. and not TV. That was one of the driving goals behind it. And even watching it now, it still feels like a film and not just a TV show. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, little things like it's shot on film and not on videotape. 
if you've watched enough old television, you get there's a visual difference you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, there's filters and whatnot. So it's kind of a point, but um, you, soap opera has a certain look, uh, and we don't see it much in here. Though we start to see it here, so I'll talk about it here. But we'll talk about it more later. Um, there is an actual diegetic soap opera inside Twin Peaks called Invitation to Love, which is shot like a normal soap opera. And what they do with that in season one is fucking amazing. <laughs> but I purposely left it out. Right. Well, the only reason I bring it up is because if, if you want to get a sense of what we're talking about in terms of the visual look between the two, imitate little snippets of Invitation to Love you see in this movie shows you that kind of, okay, that's, that's the uh, uh, videotape recording studio whereas all this is recorded on actual film stock all right we've run a little long today uh do you have any closing thoughts on the pilot episode of twin peaks aka northern passage the reason sorry another digression. it's not called northern passage i think originally they wanted to do it in north dakota but when they got into north dakota lynch noticed that they didn't have the trees that he wanted and the trees were essential <laughs> so that's why they moved it that sounds like peak lynch nope Trees are wrong. Scrap it all. Find another state. <laughs> because Lynch's, I want to say, father was part of the Department of Agriculture, so Lynch grew up knowing a lot about trees and everything else. Oh, wow. I, I have a head full of random tidbits from like watching Twin Peaks stuff, YouTubing it, listening to podcasts, and not and not for this show, just because I like it, and I did it beforehand. <laughs> well, and I, 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 honestly, I think that's when this show really works well, is when it's just like, I, I didn't do research, I just know this stuff because I'm so into this show. So, well, I said, like, I love The Prisoner. I have a healthy respect for Twin Peaks. I can't love Twin Peaks simply because of the content warning at the beginning is something I can't move past even when I first saw it. But I can respect the hell out of what it was doing and what it did. Right, right, right. Um, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, the, the Prisoner, I mean, we, we've talked a couple things about where The Prisoner stumbles. But it's able to kind of say, okay, it, it's so rare. It's like, okay, just kind of... Yeah, you know, uh, Harmony's a rough episode, kind of just get through it, um, as it were. But this one, the whole thing hinges on some really rough topics. Mm-hmm. And again, for 90s TV, uh, uh, it was very much perceived as this is groundbreaking, this is edgy, this is, uh, you know, adult drama. Um, when you look back on it, it, it comes across like, eh, it's kind of just soap opera with some extra. References to drugs and sex that maybe don't need to be there. Uh, but I'm with you. I respect the hell of the show, and I'm willing to work through some some pretty rough material in that front because everything else around it is 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 worth experiencing. But uh, uh, I don't have the same fondness for the show that you do. So certainly it's like, oh, this is, I, I respect the show. I, I, I enjoy the show. Um, but I, yeah, I don't have the same kind of connection to it as I do with The Prisoner. Uh, any other closing thoughts? Uh, just to talk about next episode, which is be pretty straightforward. It's the first season of Twin Peaks as we're in Louisville next time. Uh, it was only eight episodes. I don't know why it was only eight episodes for the first season. I don't know if it's a budget thing or not. I'm looking at Chris Okay, I don't remember that uh, off the top of my head. Uh, but we're going to cover uh, episode two, Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. Episode six, Cooper's Dreams, and episode eight, The Last Evening. Um, we are sadly going to miss the episode 
before Zen or Skill to Catch a Killer, only because I almost put it in because it has the great scene of Laura's father throwing himself into Laura's grave and bouncing out of it as the elevator for the coffin ejects him. <laughs> but it was not enough to salvage to justify the rest of the episode. <laughs> but that scene is just Twin Peaks in a nutshell. This grieving man being ejected Benny Hill style from a hole in the ground. And so if folks are curious, we are going to cover all of Twin Peaks. So I think that's going to be about five episodes roughly. So if you didn't, if you decided after this that you don't want to deal with the subject matter, feel free to bounce back after that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to Arrow. I swear to God, we're going to get to Arrow at some point. I, I promised Eddie that we would do Arrow sometime in the next decade. Um, if folks <laughs> looking for you out in the world online, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com. It's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find my creator-owned game, Pugmire, at realmsofpugmire.com, which by the time you're listening to this, the Kickstarter will have ended. Uh, but you can pre-order the new edition uh, at BackerKit. Uh, and other than that, you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord posting stuff like, hey, this Doctor Doom uh, information I found is really cool. I'm totally not going to do a whole season of Speechless now based on Dr. Doom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me in the Darker Hue Discord noting Eddie's comments about that and laughing. You can also <laughs> find me still on Twitter at Dark underscore Hue. If you're looking for my work, you can find it on my website at Dark Hue Studios. Um, from when this drops, my first official Cyberpunk credit should have been released. So you can find Yay. that on our Telesaurian games. You could also still buy Haunted West from our Telesaurian games. Buy our stuff. So we'll see you next time in Twin Peaks Season 1. Peace. <laughs>